Welcome, welcome to On Democracy with FP Wellman. We are, uh, I think, a day or two late at this point, but it's all good. We had some weather. We had some illness. We had all kinds of things going on, but you guys are used to that by now. We've got a great show. I, I, we're going to pull this thing off today with Inspired the Storms yesterday. I'm excited about our guests. We actually got to talk a little bit a couple times now, so it's going to be a great show today, and I'm not going to waste your time any more. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Welcome. I am Fred Wellman, the host of On Democracy with FP Wellman. You're in the right place. This week, we're sponsored by COVID. COVID, it's still out there, which is why we're at home. <laughs> uh, it's been another bizarre week in the country, you know, as our as our worst predictions about the GOP House have come true and they continue to make fools themselves. The national nightmare of the Alex Murdoch trial is over, so we can actually talk about something else for a bit. Uh, Matt Gates managed to get Chinese propaganda in the congressional record, uh, only to be shut down by the Assistant Secretary of Defense for the foolishness that he does. Uh, CPAC is rolling and the stupidity goes on and on there. Marjorie Taylor Greene spreading lies about great Americans like Alex Vin as well as still calling for a national divorce. You know, all of this kind of goes into it's probably a great time to actually have a conversation uh, with someone who's an expert in all this. You know, when I started the show, the second season, I promised you we would talk to people you knew, like last week, Katie Fang and Bill Crystal. But I really want to introduce you to people you may not know. And this is one of those great opportunities to introduce you to someone you may not have heard of before, who I think you're going to hear a lot more from, especially as he has his own book coming out here. He's edited among other books he's published previously. So let's get on with it. Eli Merritt is a, excuse me, Dr. Eli Merritt, as I mentioned earlier, political historian at Vanderbilt University. He writes a newsletter on Substack called American Commonwealth. It's a must read if you're a fan of this show, I think. Uh, he's written for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and Chicago Tribune, among other news outlets. He's an expert on demagogues and democracy. And the editor of the new book, How to Save Democracy, Advice and Inspiration from 95 World Leaders. Eli, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you on. Uh, we got, got a little practice yesterday. I think we're ready for today. <laughs> Yeah, great to be here with you, Fred. I really appreciate your patience, and uh, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. You know, it's, it's I was as we were prepping for the show, I, I was looking through your newsletter, I was reading the book, and there's a fantastic quote that I kind of does set up a, a little bit of our conversation. You know, and in your in your newsletter from a couple of months ago, as you as you were going through some of the issues that led to Donald Trump and and the institutions that may have failed us, um, one of the things you did mention is you say very well, we got here in the because in the 1980s. We fell victim to a dangerous laissez-faire, quasi-religious absolutism regarding the conduct of speech and the media, and it culminated in Trump. And I can't think of a better way to set the topics we're going to discuss. But I also tell you that I always like to start the show off asking my guests, like, how did you get here? Um, you know, your background was not history. You, you came in a late. Uh, where Where is the path that led you from where you were in California to Vanderbilt and studying these demagogues and the ethics of democracy? What's that path? What's been that path for you, Eli? Uh, uh, as you know, Fred, I'm on my second career. <laughs> Welcome to the party. I think we, <laughs> I think yeah. I'm on three, Eli. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Uh, well, I might be able to make it into three, but I dominantly divided <laughs> into two. So for uh, about, for 20 years, I practiced psychiatry and did some oh. teaching at Stanford, sat on some ethics board and was involved with organized psychiatry. But then in 2018, I got the opportunity to go to Vanderbilt as a visiting scholar under no direct sort of mandate, except sort of figure out what the next thing you want to do with your life is, Eli. <laughs> and what that meant is, do you want to stay in psychiatry? Or this was of my devising, obviously. Do you want to stay in psychiatry or do you want to do something back sort of in an original love and in an original passion, which, which was history? Hmm. 
and politics. I, um, I majored in history in college. And so during this period, it really was quite grueling for me. I love the practice of psychiatry. It's, I think, some, some of the most meaningful work in the world. I mainly did psychotherapy with some medications, but that was my main focus. So it was very hard for me to give that up. But I did feel both a intellectual curiosity and a calling to make a change. And that calling came from a really profound influence in my life. There's sort of two influences that did this. And that was my father. I grew up with a father who was a ethical federal judge, lawyer, defender of democracy. So mm -hmm. I grew up from breakfast, lunch, and dinner, hearing about democracy and, 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 and learning about democracy. Right. But then, so 2018, the other significant influence was someone who was the anti-father, uh, and that was Donald Trump. Mm. I just, uh, I experienced the emergence of Donald Trump, like a lot of people, with absolute shock. Yeah. And, you know, quickly identified this, this man is a turbocharged demagogue, and demagogues are extraordinarily dangerous to democracy. If you study history, you know that. Yep. But... I began to write about that essentially wrote, you mentioned some of the pieces, opinion pieces in lots of newspapers, yeah. and then eventually started this uh, Substack newsletter, which is continuing the exploration called American Commonwealth. So that's, yeah. I'm very happily into this uh, pathway now. And I've written a history book called um, Disunion Among Ourselves. So I want to keep fighting for democracy, studying history and writing history. Oh, I love it. I mean, it's so interesting to me how many of our guests on the show have such paths that kind of align in that way, right? We all came from these different backgrounds. And in the last, I would say, I guess six, now, six, seven years now, we've seen how the danger of democracy is very real. We all took it so granted, I mean, for granted. I, I served 20 years in the army. I never dreamed uh, I would face threats here. You know, I, I think I mentioned to you, uh, I've been working on a book about Iraq. And, you know, one of my memories that I, I share quite a bit is um, the difference when democracy and freedom in Iraq and here and one day I was sitting in my Sheikh Dr. Muhammad's you know house and we were eating cheap like we always do, and as we were talking, I said to Dr. Muhammad, I said, um, I said I just don't understand. You know, I, I, we were talking about our freedom here. He goes, you know, Major Wilm, you need to understand in America, freedom means you can vote and you can travel the country and 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 you know have your own career. Today in Iraq, at that time, freedom in Iraq means you stole my sheep. Boom, I kill you. <laughs> right. After after 30 years of a dictator and, and authoritarianism, their version of freedom was very different. There was a, and, and I was like, wow, you know, I thank God it's not that in America. It's kind of getting there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And here I am, you know, myself 20 years later here in the United States, you know, fighting for it myself. So, you know, I, I talk about a lot the failures and challenges faced by our democratic institutions, uh, specifically the media is one I talk about quite a bit. Sold out of I was on the show recently. Uh, you actually did a series of posts that you, 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 I think you identified three, three items that you said were institutional institutions that failed us. You, you mentioned the media, you mentioned the Republican Party failed. And then I, I thought it was fascinating. You talk about our education system. But in light of what's come out lately with, um, you know, the Dominion lawsuit with Fox News, I want to circle back to that one that the media, right? I mean, it is it is shocking what we're finding out is that that Fox knowingly spread these lies and and has now been uh, called the task for it. What is that? What does all that tell you? I mean, you wrote that piece, I think, back in October. I think it's your pen piece on your Substack about the failure of the media with the perspective now, the Dominion lawsuit. Where do you stand on, on the failure of the media as, as one of these three institutions you identified? It just it reinforces the deep belief uh, right. that that you know we we it, it is helpful to order like what is 
the primary cause of the erosion and deterioration of our democracy since 2016 or so. <clears throat> and, you know, I think it's fair to say the number one cause of the erosion of our democracy is Fox News. <laughs> Fox News. Now, someone might say, wait a minute, I think you've got that wrong. You know, Donald Trump is the number one cause. And OK, you may not be wrong, but in some ways, I think the, the Donald Trump as a candidate for office didn't have as much responsibility, I think, as Fox News as as, mm. as a news media outlet. And so they're, they're both responsible. And what's so fascinating to more deeply discover with the latest revelations by Rupert Murdoch is the synergy between Trump and his followers and many in the Republican Party and Fox News that Trump used Fox News in order to gain power, become president, and then to incite the erection against the Capitol on January 6th. And Fox News used Trump to gain ratings and to make money. And Rupert Murdoch essentially acknowledged that recently when he said, in deposition, quite amazingly, it's not about yeah. the red and the blue, it's about the green. Yeah. So I deeply, profoundly hold these institutions responsible and what is most necessary, if we look at the title of this book, you know, you could say, well, wait a minute, how do we save democracy domestically and how do we do it internationally? Domestically, the way we do it is we crush the big lie. That is mm -hmm. what we have to do internationally. I think we have to crush uh, Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. So I, I think there's so much that we can do with the media. And there's real, really some hope that through defamation lawsuits, we might just be able to restore some ethics to media which will go a long way in saving, restoring, strengthening our democracy. Yeah, and you and I really enjoyed that. You know, I've I've worked with NPR. You know, I used to be a public relations guy. I was a, I was a public affairs officer in the United States Army in Iraq. I worked with a lot of these you know organizations. You know, even then, Fox News was an organization we did work with. It wasn't it wasn't just this far down the rabbit hole as it is today. Well, um, as a matter of fact, one of the things I used to highlight a lot in my work there in Iraq was they were so rah-rah for us, you know, go America, that it actually would get us in trouble. You know, it, I would point out to my colleagues that if Fox News uh, broadcast that we had killed, I don't know, 25 insurgents, but the truth was we'd only killed three and then four of our guys got killed, Fox News wouldn't get blamed for that that rah-rah news. It would be us, the army. <laughs> you know, so so while, while it was good news, uh, it wasn't necessarily – Factual. And uh, I had the very blessed I worked. I worked up for General David Petraeus and he used to teach me it wasn't good. It wasn't positive or negative news that mattered. It was accurate, inaccurate or false. And what a very big lesson that is for us as we go forward. You talk about the ethics of journalism. You highlight like NPR's, um, you know, their 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 guidance, their ethics guidance for the for the media. But it does tie the ethics of our democracy. Right. I mean, that we. I guess it goes back to maybe that third institute you talked about the education. Do, do you, what do you think of our roles? as citizens in this in this failure too i mean where do we fall in as voters as educated citizens in our failures to support our democracy well uh let's go back to rush limbaugh and let's go back to the reversal of the fairness doctrine in the late uh, 1980s yep. that gave rise to rush limbaugh which gave rise to fox news which gave rise to even more right-wing media which gave rise to donald trump uh, you know, I think we, we, we have an obvious conundrum, which is we, we live and breathe by freedom of speech. But that doesn't mean that we, the people, cannot demand civility, demand decency, and demand truth. 
And so this brings us to uh, the, the very inspiring action, very inspiring letter written just two days ago by Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer in response to the topic you were, you were referring to earlier, yeah. which is Murdoch's confessions, so to speak, so to speak, in his uh, de uh, uh, deposition. Yeah. And they come out and they it's remarkable as they say, we demand that this is almost it's a paraphrase, at least we demand that you direct Tucker Carlson and the other commentators on your show to stop spreading the big lie and further that they acknowledge their wrongdoing against the country mm. or their negligent behavior. That's yeah. a paraphrase. I'm pretty close there. Yeah. Where it takes me, Fred, is to this place that we do have to demand the type of democracy that we want. There you go. Yeah. We don't. We, and somebody says, what about my free speech? You say, don't talk to me about your free speech. No, only the government, it only the First Amendment only protects the government right. from prohibiting your free speech. Right. I will stand up here like Chuck Schumer and, and, and Hakeem Jeffries and tell you, stop this terrible behavior that is eroding and destroying our democracy. And I'll, 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 I'll conclude that piece uh, by saying, you know, why this is so important. This big lie in our country right now is that the heart and soul of democracy, the, the, the core, the wellspring is free and fair elections. Yep. And free and fair elections only work if the people trust the free and fair elections. Yep. And then the last connection here in the mathematical model is, and the people only will trust elections if we tell people the truth. So fight, fight, fight. I also fight, fight, fight like Martin Luther King to crush the big lie. I love it. And, and that's the thing. It's a, we have to be honest. We have to be truthful. Uh, this this new thing where they refuse to accept defeat, right? Carrie Lake is the latest, uh, you know, foolishness. And, and it, it, they never, you know, they, they just are simply undermining our democracy in every way, right? Undermining the electoral system, undermining the, the process of voting and democracy. And you wrote another thing that caught my attention I was, when I was reading some of your newsletters. You know, you, you actually wrote a recent one about the, the presidential nominating system and how it's a truly a crisis in action. Um, I was really fascinated by that. I, I don't think I've had that conversation. Maybe. Tell me more about what you see as the crisis in the nominating system. And is that, you know, how is that keeping you up at night? Well, the crisis in the nominating system, we focused on the media as without this uh, corruption and demagoguery and lying within the media, Trump never would have been president. There right. is no question about that. Right. But there is another condition uh, uh, in our society, in our political system, without which Trump never would have been president either. Right. And that is for the vast majority of our history, the presidential nominating conventions have had the power to veto or essentially elect, democratically elect within the convention, the candidate that the party believed would best fulfill the mission of the platform and the, and the goals of the party in conjunction with the hope that the person would win against whoever the Democrat was going to be or vice versa. Right. Well, with very good intentions, very good intentions, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, we underwent a radical change in that where we move to direct presidential primaries. It's really complicated. We could get into the weeds about how the presidential nominating system used to work. 
party representatives would elect delegates and then delegates right. would elect delegates at the county level and the state level and the state level would elect those that go to the convention. So this was within the parties, a democratic process. There can be no doubt. It was a, re a representative democratic process. Again, with good intentions, we made the mistake of moving to a direct presidential primary. Our political parties now, when it comes to presidents, are extraordinarily weak. There's nothing they mm -hmm. can do. So, you know, I like to say if, you know, if I was a delegate and the Democratic Party uh, or Republican Party from the state of California and the people voted for Stalin, <laughs> I would have to go to the convention. Wow. And I would have to cast my vote for Stalin. So and it's fair to in some ways compare uh, Trump uh, to Stalin by now, <laughs> we know, after the revelations of the January 6th um, uh, committee. But there's so, there's, there's so many creative solutions to the problem. We just have to be willing to reform and install checks and balances within the presidential nominating system. And I'll say something bold that I believe free and fair elections, the will of the people is the essence of democracy. But I'm going to say there's another co-equal essence of democracy, and that is checks and balances. So with proper checks and balances, Donald Trump never would have been president and we would have been spared this hell. That's such a great point. And I talk about checks and balances quite a bit. You know, one of the ones I do hit on, and it goes to your ethics of democracy, again, that thread through your work I've seen, um, the checks and balances, I think what, what Donald Trump showed us is that the checks and balances in many ways were based on people sharing our values of the of of electing people who understood that there was there was limits to their power and that there was traditions norms and traditions it's, it's one of the things i used to hound on quite a bit like norms and traditions are out the fucking window or i used to it's the thing i say a lot too eli if you ever seen the show is i say we're going to norms and traditions ourselves into authoritarianism right <laughs> and, right. and you saw that you I'm saw that with, you know right so i mean yep. look at the you know the the hatch act what 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 Trump showed us is the Hatch Act's complete fucking joke, right? <laughs> that the Hatch Act, which which prevents members of of the government from you know using their positions for politics, they used the White House for the Republican convention speech. <laughs> you know, I mean, and 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 there wasn't a damn thing anyone could do about it. So it feels like the checks and balances, in many ways, Trump showed us just how weak they were. Um, and, and I mean, it, it, you're right. The call for reform is so necessary. What can we do? I mean, what can Congress or what can the right people do to kind of reestablish the checks and balances? Well, uh, in this question of the uh, president's nominating system, it's right. a piece of cake. The, 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 the political parties are not governed by much law and certainly not by the Constitution. So they could simply decide that they are going to reinstate some checks and balances there, there are other things that might be more appealing to the public, uh, such as ranked choice voting in the primaries. And the other area of, of, in some ways more painful for me, the other area of extraordinary failure that we've witnessed that I'm sure everyone will, will agree with is the failure twice of the Republicans in the Senate to convict Donald Trump after the impeachment uh, decisions in the House. Right. And and even after January 6th, that took place. And there was the opportunity. This pains me. I wrote a piece about this. This pains me that there was the opportunity in February of 2021 for the Senate to convict Trump and to remove him from office and, and more importantly, to disbar him from running for office in the future. And we were only 10 human beings votes away from that in the Senate. And these Republican senators 
and I want you, I want you to know I'm a pretty nonpartisan person, actually, but they, I mean, I'm partisan for the constitution, free, fair elections. I've just, right. <laughs> yeah. I've just unfortunately, that's, unfortunately that's a partisan issue now, right? <laughs> so the utter failure, I think they were both hyper-partisan in doing this. Yeah. But I also feel fear that they were ignorant. And I, I don't use that as a pejorative term. They just didn't understand how democracy works. They didn't understand how demagogues work. They right. didn't understand that demagogues get worse and do destroy or debilitate democracies. So I've had a little bit of a fantasy. <clears throat> I'm going to know whether I'll write about it or not, but that it's proven that what we need in Congress is continuous constitutional education. And I say that as a doctor who was required every year while I was in practice to do continuing medical education 25 hours per year. Yeah. I, I, I think it's essential that they understand themselves how democracy works better. Mm. And maybe half of those lectures would be on things like courage and they would have mm. to read Profiling Courage by John F. Kennedy. Right. So, you know, we do have to recognize that we can be creative in our democracy. I mean, we push for what we want and Again, I don't know what I'll do with this idea of continuous constitutional education, but it would be helpful. It does seem we have a lot of people elected to office who don't even understand what they're doing there. Um, that, that you know, owning the libs is what they're supposed to be there, and that's not actually a, a way of, uh, of of governing. And and before we as we go down that road and talking about democracy, I mean, let's get over to the book. I, uh, you know, you uh, what drove you to uh, create this book? I mean, I, I know it's based. You came out of the the summit for democracy last year, the first one. Second one's coming up. I, a couple couple weeks, I guess, right? Um, you know, I'm I'm curious. Like, it, it's so fascinating. I was so pleased to get a copy of it. What drove you to put this together, and 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 the format, the ideas you wanted to put in here? What was the motivation behind all this? Well, the the motivation was I happened to find myself at the end of 2021 uh, at my father's bedside. He was yeah. uh, in his last months of life, in you know, dying of cancer. So sorry. I, thank you. And, but I, my siblings were there and we sort of did shifts. And, and so during my time, not at his bedside, I did what I love to do, which is learn about democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it's, it's, a, it's a never ending pursuit of learning. And so I began to listen to some of the 100 speeches uh, delivered by world leaders at the summit, which had taken place in dis early December of 2021. I listened to them uh, on YouTube uh, later and I, I, I approached them and said, well, these folks, as leaders of democracies chosen by Biden and Harris, must have something to teach. Mm -hmm. So I began to listen for my own sake, learning about democracy. But then I was also soon quite inspired by really the poetry of some of what, not all of them, but the poetry of some of what the leaders were saying. And most notably, remarkably, the leaders from the small island democracies in the Caribbean and elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So I began to jot them down, pin them down. I just really began to realize this is this hmm. reminds me of other inspirational uh, quotations or books that I keep at my bedside, such as the collected speeches of Martin Luther King's a beautiful, beautiful uh, collection that's been really important to, to inspiring me called A Testament of Hope and and speeches uh, and by by Lincoln, for example. And I just decided this was a modern day contribution that different from a lot of books on quotations that's really diverse it comes from all over the world people of all colors people of all backgrounds and so in the end i just said this is inspirational and it's instructional 
Yeah. I put it together in this book and I ended up approaching a nonprofit, a great nonprofit called represent us that does great work uh, in terms of, I know him well. Yeah. You do good. So, and the preface was written by, uh, by Josh Graham Lynn, who is their, their director and CEO. Yep. So I just decided this would be an important contribution. And, and, and I'll end by saying that Biden said at the end of the summit, this next year should be a year of action. And in some ways, I took a directive from our president. He said it should be a year of action. I said, all right, well, what I'll do in this year of action is put together this book. <laughs> I love it. I mean, and it's a great cause. I actually, I, I, you know, I, uh, I, you know, I, I, I do the same thing. And the here's one: I, the Prime Minister of Norway kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier in this thing. Is he says he says today most threats against democracy come from within, from elected leaders who act in breach of democratic principles, embrace corruption. And disregard human rights. The threat is often amplified by disinformation, <laughs> which is what you and I have been talking about for the last, you know, fifteen minutes. And and that takes me talk about a day, you know, going back to where we are now. Um, you know, we talk about Trump. We talk about you know Bolsonaro just lost, right? Um, there's there's a shift going on. Do you think we've made any progress in the last year with those times, or are, are we still sort of in? Is it still we're still in danger, right? I mean, I I agree. I think we are. <laughs> but what's what's your take on where we sit today, and and what are the dangers looming? Yeah, I there you do you do you do see moments of progress, and I think we most of us are honest that uh, the the progress is in the ethical, more liberal media. And certainly in the Democratic Party, I, I hold out tremendous hope for the Democratic Party. My only worry is that somehow in this new state of affairs that we're experiencing, that the Democratic Party might decide, you know, we need to fight unethical Republican behavior with unethical Democratic behavior. Mm -hmm. And I, that worries me greatly. We, we must not do that. I do think that this that that the Democratic Party can triumph. I do think that the Democratic Party, with some help from, you know, so I don't I, I generalize a little too much about the Republican Party, but but the Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinzinger's, we join together to crush the big lie. I mean, I really do believe when we think of what is the danger. You just quoted um, someone from the first summit on disinformation. Yep. I do really believe that is it. If you look at what's happening in our democracy, it's disinformation and the big mm -hmm. lie that is the source of all of our troubles. And if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, which is, is going to be, I think, the major focus of the second summit, which is coming up at the end of March, Good. really look at how he's perpetrating that war. It's really based upon disinformation. I, if, if, I wish he would just be honest and say, look, I am an imperialist. And we lost this land some X number of years ago, and I want it back so that people will celebrate me the way they celebrated they celebrated Peter the Great. That's the truth. But instead of that, Putin is, is, is propagating his own big lie. And I'll go back further and say the, the Nazism was based upon a big lie. Uh, the oppression of African-American people in this country uh, for most of our history until the civil rights movement was based upon a big lie. So crush the big lie. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, the honest, honest conversations and, and it's spreading, right? I mean, for me, I am concerned, Maury, I live in Missouri now. Um, 
the foolishness going on, the, the attacks on, for example, transgender. I got into a, 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 I managed to get one of our ridiculous state delegates to reply for once on Twitter. We discussed the fact that there are more bills in the Missouri State House right now uh, attacking transgender chains to participate in sports than we've actually ever had transgender teens participate in sports in the entire history of the state. Uh, they're more focused on LGBTQ and T issues than they are about actually governing. And that brings me, you know, we've, we've, we do focus on Trump a lot, but I also think we've got a lot about, there's other authoritarians in waiting, like these folks I'm working with here in Missouri, but, you know, Ron DeSantis and is now just feel that I was just reading before we went on the air. Um, uh, the New York Times uh, uh, editorial board came out with an op-ed today um, attacking this latest a bill being floated right now in Florida to make public figures stretch a, a public figure stretches as much as a cop or anyone. So attacks on them, they could be people could be sued for anyone even criticizing them in any way written so vaguely that just saying a cop is a jerk is enough to get you sued. Um, these attacks on free speech, Sarah Huckabee Sanders and her very first act was banning the word Latinx. You know, there's so many more of these authoritarians and waiting. What is your perspective on this new class of demagogues, if you will? I mean, as you, as you study demagogues, it does seem like we've got a new junior league springing up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what do you think of the new, the new, the new minor league uh, lineup of uh, demagogues we've got facing? Well, maybe they are minor league uh, since they're not yet boards are in the presidency. Uh, let's right. keep them minor league. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure we know how to do that, but I think <clears throat> you bring up a incredibly important example in Ron DeSantis, as my approach is always to study and understand, and then form judgments that can be it's challenging to do in real time versus the historical <laughs> perspective that we have. But, I'm, I'm a pundit. I just yell, but yes, you're right. <laughs> I, think I, I, think I, think, I am thinking of writing a piece about Ron DeSantis. Yeah. And, and the thing I really encourage everyone to pay attention to with regard to Ron DeSantis is a concept that is beginning to gain currency from political science and it's called constitutional hardball. Hmm. That's something people can learn about by Googling it. There's not that much out there yet, but it is going to be exploding greatly, I think, as DeSantis uh, emerges into the scene here. And that is that DeSantis, unlike Trump, is a very intelligent, calculating, careful, constitutional, legal individual. So this concept of constitutional hardball means to your point where you said you think our democracy is going to go down the drain for this reason, because folks are going to throw out our norms and traditions. Well, that's exactly what it is. That constitutional hardball taken to an extreme is the, what looks like the Ron DeSantis approach is. He admitted, I've heard him on a podcast, he admitted, he said, look, when I first got into governor, I got in on a little more than 50%, but you know what? I got 100% of executive power. And then he proceeded to say he had agenda and he surrounded himself by lawyers. And essentially he said, you help me figure out the maximum use of my power that is legal. And that's what we find is going on. That's why we don't have a lot of lawsuits against Ron DeSantis because he's a brilliant lawyer. But the, but, but the, the punchline is this, mm. or that's, that, that puts it in a funny regard, I think. Constitutional hardball is well known to be sort of an initial tool of authoritarianism. Right. So it, not infrequently, particularly if DeSantis were to get into the White House, surround himself by crazies 
then you know there's this cross movement between the leadership and the followers or the leadership of the great leader. Um, so I think there's great danger in Ron DeSantis and the, his current constitutional hardball. But I just encourage everyone, if you want, really want to say, what is he doing? He's playing constitutional hardball. That puts it in the most objective academic light. Well, I've never heard it. I'm stealing it. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, and that's it. I mean, you're, that's actually what was my concern was. I think, I think for a lot of people, one of my frustrations I actually tweeted the other day was that uh, folks say, "Well, is Trump worse than DeSantis? Is DeSantis worse than Trump?" And I, I get frustrated. It's like that's not the right comparison, right? There's no. It's not a worse or better. Uh, that's such a simplistic approach, right? It, it is. It is the danger. They're both extremely dangerous in their own ways. Trump in the in the in the bull in the china shop technique. I, actually, I'm just make it. Trump is a bull in a china shop. He wrecks yeah. shit, right? But he brings along a fucking bunch of idiots, other bulls who wreck shit. And because yeah. they're just wrecking shit, in the way you can fight back, you're right. DeSantis walks in the china shop and carefully steals shit right off the shelves under your nose, pushing the lead, you know, <laughs> right? You know, he's just as destructive, but it's a different technique of bad. It's just a different technique of evil. And I think so I get very frustrated right now when I see my peers who are who are who are smart people say, oh, well. I think Trump is worse than DeSantis. DeSantis Y'all, there's not a better or worse. Each of them can do extreme damage to our democracy, extreme damage to our government and our nation, our rights. In many ways, um, it's a difference between a shotgun blast approach and a sniper rifle approach. And I think when you, when you describe constitutional hardball, what you're talking about is, is DeSantis has figured out that the shotgun's a little bit too obvious. So he's going to pick you off from a distance and just shoot. And all of a sudden you look around, you're by your fucking self. You know what I mean? And I think that's... Uh, the difference. Yeah, I'll, uh, I agree with you, uh, but I'll I'll give you my nuance, which might all right, I love it. Might remind me of some of the folks you just brought up. That yeah, Trump is a known entity, and I think there's probably no better way to put it than you did that he is a uh, a a bull in the in a what's the phrase in a constitutional Chinese shop <laughs> in the Constitution. And, but he's an own entity. So in some ways I do view him and he doesn't, he, he's, he's not logical. He's not rational. No, he's not a rational actor. Right. The Santis right. to, for, for me to underscore um, more the negative effects of presidential primaries on our democracy. And I think the mm. negative effects drast, drastically outweigh the positive effects. The mm. Santis is not, people say running for president, he, he's not running in the general election right now. He is running in the Republican primary. And it's an extremist primary where to, to win, he needs to adhere to these extremist, uh, seemingly authoritarian, very demagogic views. There is the possibility for DeSantis that if he wins the Republican nomination in order to win the general election, he has the ability and he to tack back to the center much more than Trump. Trump couldn't do that if the best consultants right. in the world gave him the instruction right so then DeSantis could go on to moderate in the presidency and I'm saying could go on I'm not certain but I personally feel Trump is more dangerous for our country in a second term for president than DeSantis is for a first term I don't yeah. know that's just the way I feel yeah I, and I, I you know I, it's it's there's a lot of points to be made there right it it is the Trump is clearly pursuing the most extremist elements of his party now that, that he's realized the January 6th deniers the I mean I'm I, I think I'm dreaming it but 
I think they came out with the song <laughs> supporting the January 6th. Pre- I mean, it's like the fucking insanity is incredible, but, but he is, he is kowtowing that he's more extreme elements and they're becoming more extreme. Um, DeSantis has his own methodology to it, but um, yeah, I, I, neither of them thrills me too much. That's, that's for damn sure. Well, I, you know, in all this, I, I have asked a couple of guests lately as you know, we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, what's being done, what's the national level, you know, between all this vitriol and the battle and the, it goes back and forth, um, you take an academic approach to it. What, what gives you hope in all this? You know, what gives you hope that we can beat it back, right? What is the hope for the average American or person who maybe listens to our podcast, or watch the show? What can they do? Is is there hope in all of this? Are we, are we going to make it out of here alive, Eli? <laughs> I, I hope so. I think so. I, uh, you know, to me, the hope is to sound somewhat redundant to get behind uh, crushing the big lie, because I think it is the ultimate source of our, our our deterioration and the poison in our society. And what I've done my whole life and continue to do, even though I'm 56 years old, I find uh, attachments. I mean, literally role models, paragons of behavior, thought, courage and action in moving forward. And those it really, in, in some ways, the most important has been MLK. And so I, and you can get inspired. I really do think that if we look at the big lie now and we want to crush the big lie, I live in San Francisco most of the year and we have one of the most beautiful memorials uh, in, the, in the country or the world. And that's the MLK Memorial down at what's called Yerba Buena Gardens. And it's an enormous, very loud, rolling waterfall. And in it, among MLK's many other quotes, is this wonderful one from the uh, 1963 speech uh, on the March of Washington, in which, um, again, trying to paraphrase, you know, he said, we have to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness uh, like a mighty stream. And that was to crush oppression of African-Americans in this country. I, I do think the big lie is something we should work at crushing with the same forcefulness of that. And it, it, it gives me, it gives me, people need to start, spend a little more time on the good news. Pay attention to this <laughs> remarkable letter that Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries wrote recently to Rupert Murdoch. Pay yeah. attention to it and follow that. Demand justice. If That's another principle we look out with everything happening uh, with the rule of law in our country from from Fannie Willis uh, to Jack Smith, is the rule of law happening? The rule of law is happening with the defamation cases against Fox, the defamation case uh, against Alex uh, Jones. There's a lot of great stuff happening out there. And so if you want to find hope, you know, pay more attention to that and follow what they're doing. Yeah. And just get the other thing that, again, the theme of the summit was get involved, start by learning about democracy and then find that sweet spot where you want to contribute, whether it's five minutes a day or, or five hours per week or more, find that place and just put your shoulder to the wheel and and, and fight for ethical constitutional democracy against demo- demagoguery, disinformation, corruption, and authoritarianism. There we go. <laughs> I love it. Now, the next know. summit, what, the summit's coming up, right? Will you be able to attend this summit? You're going to watch from afar? I don't, I don't know that... Uh, Average citizens like me are invited to attend. I know they're not. It's going to be half in person and half virtual. The first one was virtual. Uh, And this one's going to be co-hosted by not only the United States, but a number of other countries, including Costa Rica, the Netherlands uh, and uh, Namibia 
and a couple of other countries. So I'm going to be watching this sec. I, I encourage people to tune in because it's a powerful embodiment of everything we're wanting and talking about on this show today. And I'm going to be watching particularly uh, for what they're doing in Ukraine. And I, for one, rally entirely behind Ukraine. Yes. It, I, that's a whole other conversation to look at the, the domino effect that could happen from loss in Ukraine. Yep. And I'm also going to be looking at the wonderful stuff that some is discussing about disinformation. There are some non-Americans, namely a, 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 a man named Charles Michel, who's the president of the European Council who's doing incredible things about disinformation. He says in a way he demands that the media, this new thing called the internet, that it produce net positive effects on our democracy, not net negative effects on our democracy. And I think that's something we can get, we can get to in Europe, in the world, in the United States, if we put our minds to it and we put, put and we, and we, where there's a will, there's a way to accomplish that goal. I love it. So before I let you go, Books coming out. Tell us, tell us about the book. When can we find it? Where it will be available, and uh, and and how should people track track this down? I guess a couple of ways. It's uh, it's coming up March fourteenth, so that's coming right. up pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, and it's available uh, online. Maybe some in person, some some bricks and mortars bookstores, yep. but Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and all of those uh, online bookstores. It's also. Uh, available with a paid membership to my Substack, American uh -huh. Commonwealth, which is pretty cheap. Uh, <laughs> so that's another way that you can get it and have it be mailed out on March 14th. So perfect. You just search my name and the name of the book and you'll find it. And there it is. And we can find you, of course, on Substack. I mean, are, are you on the socials at all? I know you, I think you, I think you, I think you got sick of Twitter a while back, right? <laughs> yeah, I got <laughs> protested profoundly <laughs> a lot of my friends did people love that people love that post i put on they were like yes yeah. so I, I don't I, i'm happy with substack for now but i might find myself back on some of those at some point all right we'll hunt you down again it's dr eli Merritt. he's on his on on substack uh american commonwealth the book is how to save democracy edited by eli Merritt. will be available here on march 14th we said and so uh eli i really appreciate you taking time for me and, and coming to visit with the show and, and and chat with us uh what a joy i look forward to hearing more from you like i said i already subscribed so i'll be following you <laughs> and uh and stay in touch and good luck thanks fred thanks for your work and it's been great talking to you likewise have a great day you too Oh man, great conversation with this very smart person. I I just love the fact that uh, he's about my age and he's on his second career as well, and and he's doing great things. So make sure you check out Dr. Eli Merritt. Eli is online, as mentioned. Commonwealth American Commonwealth is Substack, and of course the book's coming out. I was blessed to get an advanced copy of it. In the meantime, of course, you know where we are. I'm at FP Wellman on Twitter. I didn't rage quit. I'm still on there and and still uh, talking to folks. Uh, I've joined everywhere else though. I'm on Spoutable as FP Wellman. I'm on Post as FP Wellman. Uh, Instagram as FP Wellman official i'd love you to join me there posting pictures and some of my favorite comments on on twitter and stuff like that uh as always the show is sponsored by our friends at vi media vi media course is your digital marketing partner based right here in greater st louis area but with a national footprint they are your number one go-to partner for your digital marketing needs and can help you in every way possible again you can find them at vi dot media that's v-i-e dot media on the internet in the meantime the show will be rackets record time next week we've got a great guest uh you're gonna really enjoy talking to you as always sorry about we're late this week as you can tell we're operating from home which means fred's in charge of technology and that's always a disaster <laughs> but i really appreciate all of you guys make sure to follow us i'd love you to subscribe to the show on youtube on apple podcast wherever you find your podcast tell your friends leave a five-star review whatever you want to do we really appreciate you keep fighting for our democracy i'll see you next week thank you